welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today with my lovely co-host, Kate Wolf, the editor at large at LARB. Hi, Eric. Hi, Kate. So today we've got part two of our two-part series on queer memoir. This one focuses on Miriam Gerba, who's the author of the recent, and we'll have to explain to our listeners what exactly this book is, but it's true crime slash memoir slash ghost story called Mean. Kate, how would you describe this book? Hmm. Uh, It seems a little cross-genre, as you say. The true crime element is just a small part of it. And the memoir seems like a good moniker, but it's also an adventurous book of prose. Exactly. I think it almost veers towards poetry in some parts of it. Totally. Uh, It's it's episodic. There's these little vignettes Mm -hmm. of someone going back through their life, exploring their identity, exploring where they came from exploring gender gender roles and sexuality sexuality yeah. and different misdeeds right and i guess it's like the memoir aspect of it and the true crime aspect are anchored by basically miriam gerbo was the victim of sexual assault as listeners will learn in the interview and she also found out that the man who sexually assaulted her who was eventually arrested and discovered, had sexually assaulted and murdered another woman. Mm -hmm. And so it opens with the death of this murdered woman and then kind of Gerba's coming of age and her own experiences and then leading up to kind of dovetailing at the end with her sexual assault and then kind of living with the ghost of this other woman. Mm -hmm. It's hard to (laughs) encapsulate this. I think that's about right, and it's very surprising and enjoyable and despite the content you're describing it's a really playful humorous i really enjoyed this book i have to say though i will say as we were reading through the book i kept being struck over and over and over again about just how timely these narratives about violation and sexuality are in this moment So, yeah, I think that Miriam has a very nuanced idea of what's happening at the moment. And we talk a little bit about it in the interview, but I've seen her write elsewhere about Me Too. And she's not completely in line with everything that people are saying. I think she has a more uh, complicated idea of sexuality, perhaps Mm -hmm. trying to avoid a puritanical approach. And especially for someone who has actually been the victim of an assault, she has a really wide-ranging way of thinking about this that doesn't fit into any particular box maybe that we're seeing now. So it's great to talk with her about it. All right, let's get right to that interview with Miriam Gerba, author of Mean. We're excited to welcome Miriam Gerba to the show today. Miriam is a poet, visual artist, and novelist based in Long Beach, California, just a little bit down the coast from us. She is the author of numerous chapbooks and two (laughs) books, Painting Their Portraits in Winter from 2015 and Dahlia Season from 2007. Dahlia Season actually won the Publishing Triangle's Edmund White Award for debut fiction and was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award. Miriam's work has appeared in a long list of anthologies and magazines, and her most recent book, Mean, something I've been describing as by turns hysterical and heartbreaking, uh, a tale of a young queer Chicana's coming of age in Southern California. Welcome to the show, Miriam. Hi. 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 Thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So this book is so many like 
I'm interested, one, how you decided to hit on a memoir as what it was, and two, just how you started the process of writing it, because it starts with a prologue of mm-hmm. something that's come back to much later in the yep. book. Mm-hmm. So I wondered if that was always the place you started with, the beginning and the story of Sophia Torres. No, I didn't start there when I started writing the book. I didn't know that I was writing a book when I first started writing about these subjects that grew into the book. I think that my starting point was actually the account of the sexual assault that I experienced when I was 19. I think that was my starting point. And I think that I wrote about that and I was experimenting with different ways to write about it. And I was experimenting with styles and forms that I hadn't seen used in order to write about sexual assault. So that was what was propelling me in writing that section in terms of, especially in terms of style. I wanted to deviate from styles that I had noticed. Can we talk a little bit about, so last week we were talking with Jonathan Alexander about Mm -hmm. his book Creep. Okay. And then your book is Mean. And you make (laughs) a lot of what like meanness is in the book. And so I'm wondering a little bit, there were two quotes that really stood out to me that I really quite liked. One was, W.H. Auden wrote that evil is unspectacular. I totally disagree. Evil is dazzling. If it's done right, mean can be dazzling too. Mm -hmm. And the other one is, sisterhood is powerful, but being a bitch is much more exhilarating. (laughs) Being a bitch is spectacular. (laughs) I'm wondering like, what is meanness to you? And maybe to the book, if those things are different. Is it just antisocial? Is it, you know, what is it? When I use the word mean in the book, typically I'm using it as shorthand for cruelty. And I'm using it in a kind of cheeky way. I don't necessarily mean mean. Mm-hmm. And I think that the book largely is about malice, cruelty, violence, but it's also about meaning. And so there's a philosophical element there as well and like a a semiotic element as well, a semantic element to what's occurring. Is there a pleasure inside of meanness? Absolutely. Okay, yeah. Yes, yeah. And again, I think that the book explores how meanness and sort of pettiness and malice and violence can be used against people in order to dominate them and harm them. But it's also used protectively, and it's also used recreationally. And so I do indulge quite a bit in the storytelling in instances where people are being mean, particularly girls are being mean, in a way that's recreational to them. Right. (laughs) Maybe we could get back to the sexual assault, which begins the book, not your own, but someone else's, Mm -hmm. as kind of the limit of cruelty yes. you know, that, yeah. that you hit in the beginning. Yes. And then, but you recuperating the idea of being mean when you yourself are writing. I mean, I guess I'm wondering, was that when you were thinking about your own sexual assault, is that what spurred the idea of mean or cruelty? Is that where you started or? I think that I didn't want to write the book in a conciliatory tone or a solemn tone or a reverent tone. Right. And typically when I have read accounts of sexual assault, they have that tone threaded through them or they don't necessarily do this. Sometimes they do, but they approach the maudlin. Mm. And I wanted to stay away from that. And I wanted to be very kind of, I guess, mordant and Mm self-deprecating and... 
I think typically when people tell stories of assault, they want to tell these sort of survivor tales that really amplify how amazing it is that a person has survived. And I think that survival is incredible, but that survivors are imperfect creatures too. Right. Like I'm a survivor, but I'm also a bitch. <laughs> you know? Right. That you and don't so, have to be a saint. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so that was a large part of the thrust that moved the story. And maybe you could set us up a little bit, give us the background of where the story is taking place. Okay. And so yeah. much of the story is set in Santa Maria, California, which is located along California's central coast. It's in between San Luis Obispo and Santa Barbara. That was where I was born. It's where I grew up. And most of the book covers my lifespan from literally birth up to my 20s. And the book is an attempt to make meaning out of my guilt in that I survived a sexual assault that occurred when I was 19. And I give some details regarding the assault in mean. And the person who assaulted me is named Tommy Jesse Martinez. When he assaulted me, he was assaulting and attempting to kidnap other women in Santa Maria. Also, uh, he was successful in some of his assaults. And then one woman was ultimately raped and murdered. And it has tortured me at times knowing that somebody who was similar to me in many ways, especially in terms of identity, was targeted and chosen for a specific crime that I was likely targeted and chosen for as well, but one of us was able to walk away. So much of the book is an attempt to understand that, Mm. make some sort of meaning of it, extract or squeeze even just small epiphanies out of meditations on that. I want to talk uh, to shift a little bit into, because the book is both true crime, right, Mm -hmm. which is describing a sexual assault and also a sexual assault and murder. Mm -hmm. And then kind of the connective tissue there is the coming of age of a young queer Chicano woman. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by some of the the points on the Mercator map of that coming to identity. Mm -hmm. One of them that I kept thinking of over and over again was the real world and Pedro (laughs) Zamora. Both because for myself as a gay man growing up, Mm -hmm. that absolutely was like in the 90s, that was what gay identity was. was. And and you had Pedro actually strikes me, Pedro and Danny, there was that like Mm -hmm. white military twink. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And both of them were like the signal kind of like good representations of, I should say gay male identity, because there was also the blonde, which was the first time I learned lip, Mm -hmm. no, 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 Beth. Beth. Yeah, who was the lipstick lesbian, the first time I'd ever heard that term. But what did those kind of representations mean to you? And how do you think they function within like the memoir itself? Those representations were really exciting for me. But when I think back on those representations, (laughs) I think of them as kind of tabloid. Like there was something kind of tabloid about them, something kind of sensational about them. Because when Pedro would be interviewed, and that's how the real world was structured, right? You'd watch them live their real lives, and I'm using square quotes for real lives. And then they'd be interviewed in some sort of weird confessional, like pseudo-confessional situation, right? And when Pedro would be interviewed or other queer people on the show would be interviewed, typically, like, they would, the interviewers would push them to circle back to these really 
kind of sensational queer themes like being disowned by one's family, struggles with HIV, just pushing sort of a sensational envelope and not allowing queer people to be mundane. Mm -hmm. And so I think of these queer figures from the 90s, along with like a lot of other tabloid figures, like I lump them in in my memory, in my imagination with like Amy Fisher and Tanya Harding, like that's (laughs) sort of the same space that they (laughs) occupy for me, because they had that same sort of the juicy kind of badness to them because they still, while they were being mainstreamed, they were still edgy enough to be like, ooh, turn the channel. Don't watch that in front of mom. Do you know what well, I mean? Well, they were being mainstreamed as freaks exactly. almost, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That it's like, but for queer kids watching in the audience, it was like, oh my God, that's, that's me. me. But that's also, me. am I this like yeah. freaky thing, you know? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we should mention that you write about Pedro Zamora in the book. Yes, Just, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah. I, I talk that's, about Pedro. Yeah. yeah. I watched a lot of real world. When I, and, and Miriam, <laughs> Miriam has, I think, probably the best like tagline for the real world, which is like seven strangers picked to live in a house plied with copious amounts of alcohol and then forced to confront each other with their various positional insecurities. Yes, something like really, that. Yeah, yeah I was, I'm, I'm yeah. cribbing there a little yeah. bit. <laughs> Do you think that in terms of writing, one of the ways that we've been thinking about a couple of shows that we've been doing this year is memoir in general mm-hmm. is like a big thing now. Sure. I mean, it even seems like it's more ascendant than it has been in, say, the past like yes. five to 10 years. Mm-hmm, I would agree. Queer memoir in particular also seems to be blossoming in mm-hmm. many ways. Do you think that there is anything, and maybe this sounds like I'm sensationalizing, but <laughs> do you think that there is anything distinct or different about narrating temporally, socially, a queer life than it is like just say a regular heterosexual life? I would say so, especially in terms of silences. Like I think that Mm. queer lives still have certain silences that non-queer lives don't experience. So I would say in terms of silences that that is present. And then there's a particular way that I think queer people are still outsiders. And Mm. then um, there's a particular way in which we have been outsiders that continues to inform how we write. What do you mean by those silences? Like, what are examples of those? For example, a queer person who's writing about themselves might not be able to mine certain parts of their life or material because they don't want to out other people. Yeah, oh, I see, I see, I see. In that regard, there might be certain silences. That's interesting. This book is interesting because there's not, you mentioned having minor epiphanies Mm -hmm. in here, but there's not necessarily an epiphany of... I'm queer. No. Uh, there, you just slyly announce it one mm-hmm. day when you're in high school, I believe, when you're hanging out in San Luis Obispo mm-hmm. to someone else. But we don't, as the reader... There's no coming out. Yeah, there's yeah. no coming out. Was that a conscious decision on your part? I think that I had initially written a coming out scene, but it didn't make it in for whatever reason. But I didn't want to use that trope. Mm-hmm. It wasn't interesting yeah. to me. Yeah. And the book is not like a chronicle of romantic relationships. Not it's at not all. a chronicle of sexual development per se. So it didn't seem necessary mm. to me to have that. And furthermore, like my coming out process never really hinged on a particular moment of throwing open a door. It was opening lots of little doors and opening drawers and opening windows. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I think that like the more subtle disclosure that happens in the book is more akin to the way that I 
outed myself to the world in much more subtle ways. Mm-hmm. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK Studios in North Hollywood. We will return to our conversation with Miriam Gerba, author of Mean, but first, this week's book recommendation. Jonathan Alexander, author of Creep, A Life, A Theory, and Apology, back in the studio with us today to give us this week's book recommendation. Welcome back, Jonathan. Thanks. So what book are you recommending for us this week? I am finishing up reading Bright, Precious Days by Jay McInerney, which is actually the last third in what I suspect is a trilogy called the Calloway Trilogy, Mm. books that McInerney began some time ago with a book called Brightness Falls, which he says is amongst his favorite of the books he's written. A lot of bright in his titles. Yeah, Brightness Falls, A Good Life, and now Bright, Precious Days, and it follows this couple, the Calloways, through a couple of decades of their life in New York. They're in publishing, and McInerney sets the books at the end of the 80s and the financial crisis then, then at 9-11, and now Bright Precious Days at the end of the second Bush reign and the beginning of the Obama reign mm. and the financial meltdown of 2007 and eight. So just tracking these interesting moments of crisis through this couple that I'm just sort of obsessed with. They're interesting, arty, but flawed, cheating on each other. This is like highbrow soap opera, and it's just (laughs) a lot of fun. And it's nice to see McInerney continuing to write, to publish, to sort of track what it's like to be at the end of the American empire. So they're in publishing, you say, yeah. but it's not really about publishing, because publishing it also has a very totally operatic like, It is totally there. about publishing. And one of the most interesting things about the book is the way it self-tracks over the last couple of decades, uh, last 20 years in particular, massive changes in the publishing industry. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to call it the absolute best thing I've ever read, but it is just absolute delightful highbrow trash totally worth reading. Uh, you, know, you need trash. You need trash you in need your life. Your this is the, but you also need candy bars. This is the best candy I've had in a long time. Very, very recommendable. All right. Thanks so, so much. So, Jonathan, can you give us the author and title one yeah, more time? Jay McInerney, Bright Precious Days. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Jonathan Alexander is the author of Creep, A Life, A Theory, and Apology. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Miriam Gerba, author of Mean. One of the things that is very frustrating about the coming out narrative mm-hmm. is that it usually hinges on one moment in mm-hmm. which everything suddenly made sense. Yeah, everything and I don't comes think, into focus. I don't and think that's, that's most queer people's experience. I think it's like, well, okay, I kind of get this. Or like, like you're saying, I really like this metaphor of like drawers and closet and windows and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, so do you also find that like maybe particularly now that narrative, which was so important for the types of media that we're talking about in the past, right? Because uh, real world, all that type of stuff, 100%, they had that capsule mm-hmm. moment that they forced yeah. them to regurgitate. Mm-hmm. Do you think we're kind of beyond that need for like the coming out story? I don't know. I think that some people might be beyond it and other people aren't. I think it depends on the audience. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I think that that's more audience dependent. 
Something I really appreciate in the book is that I think it sets up, going back to the title, mm-hmm. you have an amazing voice in the book, which Thank is you. Yeah. you capture kind of naive, restless quality of being young, and you, but you also have a great humor and more adult wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're able to kind of combine that perspective of Thank when you. you were younger and older. I wondered, one, how you came to that voice. Is that something you had to play around with? Did you actually refer to things that you had written in childhood? Or how do you capture the language of children so well? I didn't think about the voice that I was using. That's like the voice that occurs it just, came just to spontaneously. You. That's mm. how I write. But I think if anything allows me to kind of access the peculiarities of youthful language, it's that I work as a high school teacher. And so I'm around teenagers all day long, and all I do is hear them talk. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky you. <yeah. laughs> and so I think that having constant access to youthful language and youthful dialect and youthful cadence does then cross-pollinate my writing because it keeps me rooted in like a youth culture. Right. So that's probably the thing that most like organically informs it. And then my second Mm -hmm. question has to do with the cyclical nature of abuse that you portray in the Mm -hmm. book, because there are lots of these kids in the book. You were sexually assaulted when you were 19, Mm -hmm. but you kind of move incrementally up to other times where Mm -hmm. you were touched uncomfortably. Mm -hmm. But you show that it is a cycle. And I was wondering if you could talk about that as you portray it in the book and just maybe more generally, Mm -hmm. if that's your view. Well... I wasn't thinking so much cyclically in a macro way when I wrote about the experience of, I guess, what I'll call molestation when I was in seventh grade. I was thinking very specifically about what was happening at my school site. So I was being molested regularly in the classroom by a classmate who sat next to me. And a teacher saw and did nothing. And so he kind of, um, I mean, he blushed and, and looked away and completely abdicated his authority as a teacher. And that was happening at that school pretty regularly. Girls would be touched or groped or grabbed. And teachers would just sort of look away and chalk it up to boys will be boys. But many of the boys that were involved in like the grabbing and the groping and this sort of behavior were on a little league team and being coached by a man who was sexually molesting all of them. And so so I know specifically who some of the boys were on that team. And I know, and I went to school with all of them. And so once I learned that about them, once I was in high school, the behavior that I had experienced and that a lot of other girls experienced made perfect sense. It seemed to be a natural outgrowth of uh, what had been modeled for them. Like Mm -hmm. this was modeled for them, that if you like something, you grab it. Right? Yeah. right? And so it made perfect sense that they would sit next to a girl, they're experiencing a hormonal urge, and they grab like they'd been grabbed because that was essentially what happened to them. And that there will be no consequences for that. And there's no consequence, yeah. exactly. Because nobody protected them, therefore exactly. they could assume that their prey mm-hmm. would not be protected either. Precisely, yes. Mm-hmm. But in the book, there's one scene where you are with a bunch of girls and you mm-hmm. you make them cry. Um, it seems like the only the only person who actually gets punished in some ways 
in the beginning stages are women in the beginning of the book. I'm, I'm, oh, no, no, no. The, she made the white girls cry the, because yeah. she called them out yeah. on their racism. Yeah, yeah, that was the fifth grade race war. Right. Yeah. Yes, where there was a back and forth between the bilingual class and the monolingual class. Mm-hmm. Right. And then we had to have a sit down to talk about why there was such tension on the playground. Right. And then, yes, and then we were forced to apologize to the white girls because we had hurt their feelings, yes, by calling them racist. And that scene is so beautifully (laughs) done, both because it shows that it's like racism happens even in this, quote unquote, like innocent time of childhood. That it's like those girls were as racist as they would probably be as adults. Sure, but they were being parrots. They were parroting exactly what they had heard somebody else say. Which speaks to your thing about the cycles of violence. It's like this kind of replication. One of the pleasures that I had in reading the book is both trying to figure out when we were going to come back to this opening <laughs> mm-hmm. scene. So that's, yeah. you know, that creates like a yes. certain kind of narrative tension. Mm-hmm. But also, I really like your style. The way I kept thinking about it is you're floating between kind of narrative driving description and action and then these kind of wonderful, almost unre- seemingly unrelated details, like <laughs> Velcro on their shoes, for example. Mm-hmm. It'd be like, you'll get this great description of two girls interacting and what they were doing. And then there's like, and then they snap their Velcro shoes together or like all these kind of things. So I was thinking, you're also somebody that works in so many different media formats mm-hmm. yes. that I'm wondering what your relationship is to prose and also then kind of why a book seemed to be the channel for this particular story versus mm-hmm. poetry or anything else? Well, I love, I really, really, really like language. I really, okay. really, really like words. So if I have a choice between trying to represent something through like a more traditional visual art form or through language, text, words, I'm going to pick words. Do you think words give you more purchase on like what you're actually after? I don't know that it's that they give me more purchase, but they excite me more. Okay. So they excite me more and they can live in my imagination and keep me company in a way that images don't. I can't I cannot become obsessed with an image and manipulate the image in my head, what feels like endlessly, but I can do that with words and words like they dig hooks into me in a way that images don't either. Okay. And then I become obsessed with the words and obsessed with story and then just the words swell and grow and swell and grow and like replicate exponentially okay. and so and there's pleasure in that like there's an intellectual pleasure that comes with that experience i appreciate that you noticed those sort of detailed non sequiturs because i think that those are what make prose prose right so that's what makes prose matter like to me what makes prose matter are verbs because verbs make it move Mm. And verbs show you what the prose can actually do. Right. And then non sequiturs that really put you in a place because nothing defines place like those idiosyncrasies of place. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I'm obsessed with those sorts of things. I love that. The book finishes with actually the trial of Mm -hmm. this man or it wraps up Mm -hmm. towards the end with the trial of this man who Mm -hmm. assaulted you and who murdered this woman, Mm -hmm. Sophia Torres. Mm -hmm. You decide not to testify. And part of the reason is because you decide that you want to keep something private. Yes. And in the book, you do describe what happened to you, but it would be hard to say that that is the actual focus of the book. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could talk about your decision not to testify and, and how much you think within the text you withhold or keep some things private 
about what happened. Mm-hmm. I chose not to testify against Mr. Martinez for about three big reasons. One of those reasons being that I didn't want to tell that story in a small town courthouse. So Santa Maria is a small town, mm. and I would likely know people mm-hmm. in the courtroom. And I was so incredibly humiliated by what he did to me that I didn't want to relive that humiliation in front of people who might someday be my employers. That was really what motivated that. And I think I mentioned in the book how many people in my sort of peer group responded to learning that boys on the softball team had been molested. It was just joke after joke after joke after joke. They never stopped being the butts of pedophile jokes. And that was really instructive to me. I realized, oh, okay, I'm never going to stop being the butt of a joke if people learn specifically what this man did to me because he sexually assaulted me in a really humiliating way, in a way intended to humiliate me and embarrass me. And so I didn't want to experience that. And further, at the time, I had thought about going to law school. Mm -hmm. And the idea of like testifying and explaining what had happened to me and then maybe potentially someday working in this place just seems so dissonant and, and upsetting to me I see. that I decided not to testify at all. I just ignored the subpoena that I received. And is that part of your guilt for the woman who was actually no. murdered? Or No, it's, that's okay. not my guilt. My guilt stemmed from the fact that according to the assaults that were reported and the attempted assaults, because he assaulted several other women and he attempted to kidnap several other women. According to those, he assaulted me first. And Uh, so I felt responsible in that had I somehow managed to disable him or if I had somehow managed to help police find him, somebody wouldn't have died. And so that was where a lot of my guilt came from was that I was first. And if I had been first and had somehow done something differently, perhaps I I could have prevented future harm. So that's where a lot of the guilt came from. I love this image of this woman's ghost moving through you and listening to the radio Mm -hmm. through you. Um, And that occurs in the beginning of the book and kind of comes Mm -hmm. back at the end. I wonder, this is such a momentous time in a lot of ways for Mm -hmm. women who have experienced sexual assault, Mm -hmm. but it's also a very confusing time. Absolutely. And I've enjoyed things I've seen that you've written on social media about it. Your book came out at Mm -hmm. such a perfect time. I don't think they're exactly parallel, but I'd love Mm -hmm. to hear your thoughts on what's happening right now with Me Too Um, or some of your thoughts. Some of my thoughts. I have a lot of criticisms, the Me Too campaign, and I also have a lot of criticisms of various, like, discourses that... I'm listening to various competing discourses. And I think one of the things that bothers me the most about it is a flattening. There's just a, there's a flatness to the conversation. It's presented as black and white. There's a lack of nuance. There's a lack of subtlety. And there's what I think is a misplaced scale. Masha Gessen wrote about that in The New Yorker, mm-hmm. that there's now this large category of just sexual misbehavior and anything from like a blitz rape to getting a pat on the butt is put into this barrel as if it's the same thing. 
and it's not. These things are incredibly different and they likely happen for incredibly different reasons. And while they might have a relationship to patriarchy, to treat them as if they create the same type of harm and function in the same ways is silly. It's absolutely silly. So then do you think the antidote to that is like really doggedly paying attention to the nuances and not stopping from holding anyone's feet to the fire? Well, I think if you're going to have a conversation, you have to have a conversation and not just throw rhetoric at each other. Sure. And that's what people are doing is they'll whip out their rhetoric and just toss it like tossing a ball. And it's like you're not actually exploring anything if you are exchanging one ideology for another. (sighs) Unfortunately, we have to end on that note. I think that's actually like a great tip for most of life right now (laughs) is like to actually engage and not just throw these like rhetorical platforms at people. We've been speaking with Miriam Gerba, author of Mean, a new memoir out from Coffeehouse Press. Thank you so much, Miriam. Thank you. been listening to the larb radio hour subscribe to our podcast in itunes soundcloud or stitcher if you like the show leave us a comment and tell us what you think the larb radio hour's executive producers are eric newman medea ocher and kate wolf our engineer is lyra smith our researcher is chloe chap production assistance is provided by william broaden eleanor duke and jake levins our interns samson amore natasha boyd and joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour.